chapter 5 this morning. And uh, this is definitely one of those sermons that uh, as uh, we knew that we were going into 1 Corinthians and I started blocking out uh, how we were going to preach the sermons and when we were going to preach them, uh, I looked at this one and I was like, man, that's going to be an interesting one when we, when we get to that passage. And if you don't know it, you'll see once we get into it. But it's, a, it's an intense passage and it really, um, it deals with sin, um, the effects of sin, the cost of sin, uh, the, the, the weight of sin. And, um, and so, of course, it's not anything that we really enjoy talking about, um, but God loves us enough to put it in his word because, um, because he cares for us. Uh, I have an 18-month-old son at home. His name's Edwin. We call him Wynn. And so at 18 months, he is into everything. And he's constantly in peril. Uh, he likes to climb on anything he can find, stools, you know, chairs, railings. Um, he loves anything that's plugged into a wall is among his favorite things. He likes to, And so I, I'm, I'm trying to give him freedom and to learn from his mistakes, right? That's, that's how you learn some things. But there's times where I just have to intervene and say, hey, no, this is a boundary, buddy. You can't do this, right? You can't walk out in the middle of the street because I love him. And, and that's what God's love for us looks like. He, he loves us enough that he doesn't only tell us the good news. Sometimes he corrects us and sometimes he tells us where the boundaries are so that we don't get hurt. And, uh, and, and so that's one of the things that we really value and love about preaching through books of the Bible uh, here at Riverside is because you get the good and the bad and the ugly. You get it all. You get the fullness of God's word. Um, it's, it's enjoyable to come in and have every week be a pep rally where we just feel good about ourselves and what we can accomplish and what God is doing in, in us, right? But at some point, it's like spiritual junk food. It kind of it prevents us from getting the sustenance that we need. You, you need the good news and you need the bad news and you need the, the tough news and you need the, the, the pat on the back. You need it all, right? And so today is going to be one of those ones that, um, that is heavy, but, it's, but, but we need it. It's, it's, it's necessary. Um, we know um, the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And so because of that, you know, some of the questions that we're going to look at this morning is, you know, if we're a community of people who've been saved by grace, and if Jesus paid for all of our sin on the cross, then, then how big of a deal is, is sin, right? I mean, if, it, if it's paid for, if it's already been done, you know, what's the big deal? So we sin a little bit. Jesus already paid for it. It's like dad with the credit card, right? Like, hey, put it on my tab. It's all taken care of. But, but how many of you have known that, that, that kid that grew up with the, the, the wealthy parents and they got him the really nice car? And how well did they take care of that car? <laughs> they didn't value it because they didn't have to work for it and they didn't earn it and it was just given. And so they treated it loosely. And, and it's the same way when we look at sin that way, right? We, uh, we, we, uh, if we don't think about the cost of it, you know, people might ask, shouldn't we just accept everyone as they are and just show grace rather than legalism? I mean, wasn't that what Jesus was doing? He was walking around and, and he was always opposed to the Pharisees. He's like, you guys are too legalistic. You got too many rules. Like, just love people. That's the message of Jesus. So, so shouldn't we do that as a church? Doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you be judged? Isn't sin just personal and private? It's nobody's business but the person involved. All those things have elements of truth in them. Um, and so it's easy to see how the church, especially the early church, could misunderstand that and come to a place where they rationalize and justify and just kind of turn a blind eye to sin. But that's not what the, the whole counsel of God's word tells us. It doesn't tell us to, to, to just uh, accept grace um, and, uh, and, and ignore sin. In fact, this Bible passage that we're going to look at today tells us almost the exact opposite of that. 
Uh, there's a, an old story that's told about, about sin and tolerance, and it goes like this. There's a number of, of passengers that are on a, a wooden boat, and they're, and they're seated in the, in the boat. And, um, and one of the passengers all of a sudden pulls out like an old-school drill and starts drilling a hole into the wooden hull of the boat right underneath of his seat. And the, the passengers around him obviously become concerned, and they start saying, hey, what are you doing? Like, stop doing it. And he's like, hey, I'm not drilling under your seat. I'm drilling under my seat, so what's the big deal? Well, you can see the problem, right? The hole that he makes under his seat is going to let water into the boat that's pretty soon going to become everyone's problem. And that's how sin works. Sin is never isolated. It's incredibly selfish, but it never happens in a vacuum. Think about children whose, whose parents are on death row right, for a crime that they've committed. Do you think that's an impact on those kids? Do you think that impacts the way that they're going to grow up and their kids, right? It has generational impacts. And, uh, and, and so we need to, to feel the weight of it and, and treat it and see it the way that God sees it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It really is a choice between death and life. And I will say this, I forgot to say this the first time I preached, but if, if today's sermon grabs a hold of you, I would encourage you to, to jump into Romans this week. Romans, the, the book of Romans pulls this out in great detail, what we're going to look at from a, from a high level today to really think about uh, the depth of grace and the depth of sin. But let's pray. Let's ask God to open up our hearts as, as we dig into to his word uh, this morning. Father God, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for your word. And, and we know that we, if we read it with our own human fleshly understanding and, and knowledge that we're only going to get a tiny picture of, of what you're trying to show us and we won't understand it. And so we, we ask that you would open our spiritual eyes, that Holy Spirit, that you would, um, that you would un, unwrap and open up the word to us this morning, that we would just see how it penetrates to the depths of our own lives and what you're calling us to do in response to it. Um, give us the gift of, of, of understanding and, and if needed, give us the gift of repentance. Uh, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, and so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to work through a number of questions this morning. The first question is, which sin is the worst? Uh, isn't, that, isn't that, sadly, that's what we think about, right? A young couple dating, and they're like, they're like all right, where's the edge? <laughs> how far can we go and not go across the edge, right? That's, that's the, just our human nature is we want to know how close we can get to the fire without getting burned, right? And so the question for us this morning is, how, uh, how, where's, where's the boundary? What is the, what's the worst sin? What, what, what sin is just the worst, right? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it begins this, and Paul's writing to this church in Corinth. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, we don't get any more detail than that about what's going on here, but over the years, certainly people have speculated. And the, and the common speculation is that, that there was probably a man and a, and a, and a wife, and, and they had a son, and he grew up to adulthood but still was living in the home with them. And then the mother died, and that the, the father likely remarried a woman who was likely much younger and uh, closer to the son's age, and then she came to live with them in the house, and the son became interested in his stepmother. It's like a messed up situation, right? It's like something like everybody's like, man, that's not right, right? And we don't know what happened between them. Although I do think it's interesting in this passage, it's really the man who is called it. The son is the one that says, hey, 
uh, you need to hold him accountable for this, you need to do this, right? Uh, the woman isn't mentioned, and so we don't know if this was a consensual relationship. We don't know what happened, uh, but we know that everyone across the board would look at it and be like, dude, that's messed up. <laughs> that, that should not be happening, right? Um, and so it, it's this broken situation uh, that was forbidden even by the, the pagan culture. And, and if you remember, as we talked about earlier in this series, the city of Corinth was like a wild place. Like anything goes, there was all kinds of stuff, cultic uh, prostitution, there was, uh, it, it was a very uh, open society, there was a lot going on, but even that society was looking at this situation and saying, man, that's, that's not right. And I think it's important for us to understand as, as Christians, because in, in our culture today, um, it's positioned, the argument is positioned that, oh, you're restrictive, you just want to put up fences and rules and boundaries, but I'm all about freedom. I'm all about letting people just be who they want to be and not having any boundaries. But, but that's not true. That's not really what it is. Everybody has boundaries. It's just we live in an era where the boundaries of our culture have been moved further and further out. But there are still boundaries. There's still things that everybody across the board would say, hey, you know what, that's not right. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier, consent is something that we've talked in our society that says, hey, that's an important piece. Like, that, that's an essay. That's a boundary, right? So it's not that we have boundaries and other people don't have boundaries and uh, they only celebrate freedom. It's just that our boundaries are different places. And so the question you have is, where do I want my boundaries to rest? Do I want my boundaries to rest on the ebb and the flow and the high tide and the low tide of cultural norms where society gets conservative and society gets very uh, licentious and, and it goes back and forth? So I want to anchor myself to where society is today or do I want to anchor my boundaries in the timeless word of God, the one who created us, who created our bodies, who created them with a purpose? Which one of those is a better place to anchor my boundaries? I mean, I think I'm transparent in which one you think <laughs> I think is a better way to do it, right? Um, because because things come and go, and there's a pendulum swing that goes back and forth, and, and 300 years from now, uh, by God's grace, our culture may look at what we are doing today and be like, man, those guys, wow, they were, they were crazy, right? So, so everybody's got boundaries. But, but the church at this time was allowing something to happen in, in their midst that even the, the pagan culture of their time said, hey, that's outside of the lines. Also notice that, it, that he says it's actually reported. He doesn't say who told him. It's, it's become common knowledge at this point. And, um, and I think it's really wise of Paul, and he says, hey, it's, it's been reported. He doesn't say, hey, this person told me, and this person, and this person, because what happens when they say, hey, this person told me about this? The immediate response is, well, why did they tell you that? What was their motive? It's the headline of every political story in the news right now, right? right? It's not what's in the email. It's like, who leaked the emails? It's not what was said in the phone call. It's like, well, who, who recorded the phone call, and who, who witnessed the phone call, and who's talking about it, and what's their political motivation? And it's just a misdirection. It's just a strategy to take the, the attention off of what really needs to be talked about, which is the sin. If, 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 uh, if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't have to worry about it. Um, it does trouble me a little bit that Google Home and Siri and, <laughs> I mean, there's like, right now there's like a hundred different things that are listening to everything that we're saying, Right? But the reality is, is that if you're not doing anything wrong, that shouldn't be, uh, at a personal level, a huge concern. Like, I don't, I don't care if Siri releases what I'm saying out to the world because I'm not trying to say anything that's going to, to hurt myself or anyone. But at the same time, the invasion of privacy is concerning. So I'm just, just saying that. Um, 
But Paul doesn't fall for the, 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 the temptation to allow misdirection to be on, like, well, who said it and why they say it? He's like, hey, let's zero right in on what happened and, and, and what's going on with that. So I still haven't got to my question, which is, what is the worst sin? Well, that comes in in verse 2 here, right? Verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And that's the heart of it. What this guy did was really bad. But the problem is, is that he's unrepentant. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He doesn't see anything wrong with what he did. And, and, and apparently the church is defending it as well. The church in pride is saying, hey, we live by grace. So, you know, that's the worst sin. The worst sin is the one that we won't acknowledge, that we won't admit, that we won't repent. Because we talked earlier, right, the, the free gift of God is eternal life. God, through Jesus Christ, has purchased at great cost to himself our forgiveness. But the problem is, we have to receive it. How many of you guys have a, have a Christmas present at home that you haven't opened from last year? You're just kind of sitting on it, just waiting. Anybody? No, that'd be crazy, right? Who would do that? What good is a gift that you never open? And, and so, so when we sin and then in our arrogance and our pride, we say, I don't need forgiveness because I haven't done anything wrong. We're putting ourselves outside of the forgiveness of Jesus. That's the worst sin. The one that goes unrepented of. Now, I know some of you biblical scholars are going to say, well, technically the Bible says that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the worst sin, which is very closely related, right? Because when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're essentially denying um, uh, the power of God to, to bring forgiveness of sin. It's, it, it's a denial, right? So, so they're very closely related to one another, but I had to put that out there for you guys. Um, so that's the problem, right? They're, they're, it's not just that they sin, but they're rationally. If even despite what he did, if he had come and said, I'm broken over this. I can't, I don't, I can't even believe this happened. I'm, you know, but I, I need forgiveness. I need, you know, there would be a way forward. There would be forgiveness. There would be restoration. There would be a way for, for this sin to be forgiven. But it's his hardness of heart, his pride, and his arrogance that's keeping forgiveness from taking place. So what should be done? Well, the answer that we get from Scripture is that arrogant, unrepentant sin requires, uh, requires removal from the community. Verse 2b, the second half of it says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so we get a greater detail of this over in Matthew uh, chapter 18. Um, and uh, in this, Jesus lays out what we're supposed to do when someone sins amongst us uh, within the community of, of the church. It says, if your brother sins against you. So this is someone who's, who's part of your, your, your fellowship, of your community. It's someone that would claim to be a Christian, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So we don't gossip. Uh, we don't whisper about it in the hallways. We don't put them on blast on Facebook, right? We don't, we don't do any of these things. What we do is we go to them one-on-one -on -one and say, hey, listen, I don't even know if you know this. I don't know if you realize this, but I, I believe that you're, you're, you're in sin. I believe that you're doing something that's opposed to what God would want for you. And I don't want that for you. Um, and if you do it with grace and you do it with humility and you do it in love, there's the potential that they'll see it and say, like, you know what? You're right. Thank you for having the courage to tell me, right? There's the possibility that you actually come out of it with a stronger relationship than you even had with them before because you love them enough to, to confront them on their sin. But if they deny it, if they refuse to acknowledge it, if they refuse to repent, 
then you have to go to the next step. It says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so you grab two or three other brothers and sisters in Christ and you go to them and you say, hey, here's the deal. And, and there is the possibility that those two or three might look at you and say, hey, you know what? Actually, you've got it wrong. You're misreading the situation. I don't think they've done anything wrong. And you have to be willing to accept that. But, but if all of you, you and the two or three that you get, go and say, hey, no, look, we love you and we love Jesus and we're looking at what's happening and, and this is just wrong and you need to turn and repent, then you've established a, a witness and, and hopefully they will turn. But if they don't, it says um, that if he refuses to listen to them, you need to tell it to the church. And I would say first you go to the leadership of the church and say, hey, this is happening and we want you to know and, and, and we want you to talk to them. And, and, but, but even if then they're unwilling, then you bring it to the body and you say, hey, look, here's the situation. We've, we've lovingly come and begged this person to turn and repent and they aren't willing to do it. And if that's the case, it says, if you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Those are verses we hear quoted a lot, right? But not often in that context. And so the context that those verses are delivered in is in the sense that, hey, when, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, that you're, you love me and you honor me and you follow me, that when you come into these conflict situations, that my spirit is there with you. That, that if you say, hey, hey, we agree and we look at this and we can tell that this person has sinned, that, that it's a binding. It's, it's as if Christ himself is saying it. And so it carries this incredible weight. When the church comes, it's a heavy thing. When the church comes and says, hey, look, you're in sin. You need to turn. You need to repent. And, and, and Paul really says the same thing back over in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 3. He says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's what we've got to grab a hold of here. The removal is, is for repentance and it's for restoration. The reason that you would take these steps and go through all this is not vindictiveness, it's not judgmentalism, it's not self-righteousness. The point of all of it is so that this person would see the incredible weight and seriousness of their sin and thus turn and come back. And that all the church would rejoice when they did, when they truly turned um, we've seen this actually in, in, in a number of cases, sadly, recently, where there's been uh, very high-profile, well-known pastors that have been removed from their churches, not because they had an affair, not because they stole money, but because of uh, unrepentant sin that they had uh, in, in one case uh, or in multiple cases. It was, it was this sort of domineering spirit where they were not demonstrating the fruit of the spirit. They were just steamrolling over people. They were using people on their staff. And the church and the elders came to them and said, hey, look, your behavior is not in line with Christ. You need to change. And so there was appearance of brief repentance, but then they would go back to it. And after this happened a few times, they finally came to the place where they had to say, hey, look, you're unrepentant. You're not turning you're not changing, and so we're going to have to remove you. I mean, that's sad when that happens. It's sad to see it happen, but at the same time, it's a fulfillment of what is meant to happen in the church because sin is serious. Now, at this point, you might be looking at it and be like, well, whew, 
I'm off the hook on this one, right? <laughs> because I didn't do anything near what, like, that guy did. That guy, yeah, he's, you know. But me, you know, you know, I, I, have, I have a little bit of this, a little bit, you know. Um, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. But, but the reality is that, that all sin has a weight. All sin has an effect, and it has a ripple effect. And so the question that we want to ask next is, who does sin affect? Verse 6 says this. It says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Who does sin affect? The answer is it infects the entire community. And he uses this analogy. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That a little bit of sin spreads through the whole thing. And, and he's making reference here, and it's not something that we do today because uh, they couldn't go to, over to Giant and just buy a packet of yeast if they wanted to make bread, right? So they, um, and they didn't have Panera bread, so they couldn't just go buy their bread already made, right? So they had to actually make bread. And so they had a leavening agent as a rising agent. And so when they made bread, they would take a little bit of the dough, they would set it aside, they would bake their bread, and then they would take a little bit of that dough and they would mix it in with their next batch. And so that would continue to pass that leavening agent, the rising agent would go from bread to bread. It's kind of like the Amish friendship bread that gets passed around uh, sometimes that fad comes and goes right where uh, you get this ziploc bag full of dough right and then you're supposed to do it and pass it on somebody else and let me just say that um, I understand the tradition and I value it and everything it freaks me out a little bit right? <laughs> when somebody's got like a bag full of dough so uh, I just want to throw it out there because like I didn't want you to come and say I heard you talking about friendship bread and I know how much you love it so I made a whole batch for you right like uh, I I love you and I thank you but I'll probably go just throw it in the trash after you give it to me so just getting that out there. That's something I may need to work on in me, not, not you, right? But it's this idea of leaven. And he makes this incredible analogy. He, he points to unleavened bread, which would immediately, immediately trigger for the audience that was listening the Passover. Because when they would celebrate the Passover, they would always use unleavened bread. Because when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt through all the plagues and everything, and finally Pharaoh was willing to let them go, they went in such a rush that they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. So they ate unleavened bread. And so every year they had this feast of the Passover, which was meant to remind them of when they left Israel and they ate the unleavened bread and they had to go in a hurry. And it's also a reminder of the Passover because the angel of death came through the town and, and the firstborn in every house was killed, except for those that had killed a lamb and took the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of their home. And anyone who was under the blood was saved. They were spared. Well, clearly this is screaming about Jesus to us, right? <laughs> Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb who was slaughtered and his blood was put over us so that we would be spared from death. And so he's intentionally drawing their mind to this. And there, it goes even a layer deeper because, because he says, um, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened because not only was Jesus the perfect Passover lamb, but Jesus was truly the unleavened bread. With Adam and Eve, sin came in and each generation sin, just like the little bit of dough that was passed into the next batch, sin was passed down generation after generation and then the flood came and everybody was wiped out except Noah and his family. But guess what? The leaven was in the ark with them. And so it kept coming and set kept coming until Jesus, who was born of a virgin, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that the line of leaven was broken. And so Jesus is not 
tainted with the leaven of sin. He's the unleavened bread. He's the, the perfect sacrifice. That's why he could die for our sins, because he had no sin. He broke that line. And what Paul is saying here is something really amazing. He's saying, you're not part of that leavened line anymore. You're part of the unleavened line of Jesus. When you died uh, and you were raised to life and you were born again in Jesus, and we symbolize that through baptism, that you became a new creation. And we had this discussion in, in, in some groups recently that, you know, it's, it's Christian speak to just kind of say, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. Um, you know, uh, you know, just a sinner saved by grace and, you know, but by the grace of God. I don't know, I go into the southern accent whenever I go to Christian speak, right? But um, here's the reality. The Bible doesn't say that, right? Where in the Bible does it say, oh, I'm just a sinner? The Bible says you were dead in your sin, but now you're a new creation. And so Paul's encouraged them. He's like, take on your new identity. That's not who you are anymore. You were that, yes. You were born with the stain of sin, but... You've become a new creation in Christ. You are now unleavened bread just as he was. Now, do we still struggle with sin? Yeah, we still struggle with it. But that's not our identity. We're not falling back into who we are. When we sin, it's an aberration. We are a new creation. We are made in the image of Jesus. We are, we are holy and pure and blameless in his sight. And so when we sin, that's, that's a, a falling back into an old routine. But that's not who our identity is now. And he says, stop treating yourself as if you're still that because that's not who you are. You're something totally different now. Some of us really need to let that get down into our souls. Some of us really need to embrace that we are a different person because guess what? Nobody's going to believe it until you believe it. The people you live with, your spouse, your children, your parents, they're not going to believe you're a new creation until you believe it of yourself and you begin living like it. And then this incredible thing will happen that little by little they'll see it and they'll be like, man, you're different. I didn't believe it at first, but you were different. And say, I got no leaven, right? <laughs> and they'll be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Live is the, the unleavened bread that you are. And so the fourth question I want to ask him. So are we to judge one another? Are we to judge one another? Verse 9, he says this. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's almost kind of joking here. He's saying like, hey, I wrote you an earlier letter and we don't have this letter. It's not one that we have access to. Um, but he had wrote him a letter and said, stay away from, from those people. And uh, he's like, I wasn't talking about in the world because if, to do that, you just have to leave the world altogether, right? And sometimes people try and do this through uh, cults and, and communes and, and some different monastic communities where they say, hey, I'm just going to completely remove myself from the world. But, but, but Jesus called us to be salt and light into the world. He wants us to learn how to be pure in the midst of a sinful world. And so Paul said, I'm not saying don't do business with the, the cussing uh, fish salesman down the street, right? He's like, I'm not saying you can't do that. What I'm saying is in the church, for those that call themselves followers of Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't behave that way. Verse 11, he says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who calls himself a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What he's saying, um, 
Anybody ever said, uh, anybody thrown that line down, hey, judge not lest you be judged? Or we like to pull out like, hey, take the plank out of your own eye before you come after the speck in my eye, right? And those are, those are true. Those are biblical things. But nobody's really quoting uh, 1 Corinthians 5, right? <laughs> when it says, hey, I am called to judge the church. And what he's saying is that, that, that if someone's claiming, say, hey, Jesus is my Lord, he's the king of my life, he's my savior, then we have the right as brothers and sisters to call each other to account and say, hey, I know that you claim to follow Jesus, but what, what you're doing doesn't seem to be in line with, with what he wants. Come on, let's look at this together. Let's figure this out. This doesn't seem right for someone who's, who's claimed Jesus as their king. Now, this can get really messy. Um, but basically it boils down to this. In Romans 8.1, there's a verse that, that we also love to, to quote a lot, right? That says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's true. That's the reality. For those that are in Jesus, we're no longer condemned. He separated our sin as far as the east is from the west, that we can rest in that assurance. And so really what this whole process is all about is if there's someone who's in the church community, they're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but you look at what they're doing and they're sinning against God and they're proud and they're arrogant and they're unrepentant and they won't turn. In love, you have to come to them and say, hey, maybe you're resting your assurance on something that, that, that isn't real. Are you really in Christ? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but are you really in Christ? Right? That's a, that, that's a challenging thing. And in, in the church of Corinth, they all knew each other. They knew who the Christians were in Corinth. In, in Horsham, there's probably 30 churches. <laughs> we don't all know each other. And so the reality in our day and age is that somebody can, can come, and if they're involved in sin or called in sin or they're unrepentant, they won't stick around to wait to be removed from the community. They'll just leave and go to a different church where they don't know what's going on, and they won't hold them accountable. Right? And so it becomes hard to do church discipline. Uh, and it's one of the things that we talk about in our revision and values class and on the way to becoming a member of the church is that it, to become a member of a church is ultimately to voluntarily say, I believe in Jesus, I want to follow him, I believe that this community loves and knows and honors Jesus, and if I start to stray, if I lose the course, if I kind of freak out and start to do things that are not right and not in line with Jesus, I'm inviting you to come after me, to pursue me. To, because out of love, because I want you to bring me back. If that ever happens to me, I want you to bring me back. That's really what it means to be a member of a church. And, and, and so that's what those who become members, whether you know it or not, that's what, that's what you've committed to. If someone's not a member of a church, our, our ability to, to, to go through this process becomes more limited. So if you've gone through the class and you haven't yet signed the, the paper or met up with us, I, do it. It's, uh, it's scary, and it's, and it's, and it's, uh, and it's deep, and it's uh, profound, but, man, it's a great thing. Because don't you want the people that you love and trust and that you know love Jesus in your darkest moment, don't you want those to be the people that are coming after you? And say, hey, you gave me the right to pursue you. You told me you wanted me to do this, right? That's, that's what we should want. So as we think about responding to this, here, here's a couple things I want to say. First of all, you might be sitting here, and you might... Um, you might say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, but man, uh, now I'm like freaked out because I know there's some sin that I haven't dealt with, and I'm sitting here. Now I'm afraid that I may not be going to heaven, and uh, that's not my goal today, right? If you're sitting there and you feel convicted by sin and you feel like, oh man, 
the weight of this is killing me and I, I feel horrible about this. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's not arrogant, proud, self-righteous, don't talk to me, I don't want to hear it, I'm fine in what I'm doing, right? That's a convicted heart, and that's the normal pattern of a Christian life. I don't know if I go through a day where I don't feel convicted, right? Speak harshly to my children, you know, I, I do things selfishly, I don't do the good that I could do. We're meant to continually be acknowledging, repenting, asking Jesus forgiveness, and then fully trusting that he will keep his promise and he'll be faithful to forgive us and to accept us, and that he died knowing that we would do that. That's one of the things that really gets you, right? When you're like, man, Jesus, when you died on the cross, you knew I was going to make this mistake, and you still did it anyways. You love me so much. That's what being a Christian is meant to look like. We're not perfect, but we're repentant. We confess to the Lord, and we, and we ask him to forgive us, and we trust that he will. And he proved it because of what Jesus did. And so that's, if, if you're dealing with sin today, good. Deal with it. Don't push it off. Don't be proud. Deal with it. If you're here today and, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I, I hope that you do feel some of the weight of that the wages of sin is death, that if you die in unrepentant sin and you don't ask Jesus for forgiveness and you don't receive the gift, that Christmas gift that he's got waiting for you to open up, right? If you never open the gift, then you will die separated from him. And I don't want that from you. We've talked about this a bunch in here recently that repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. The change of mind happens right now today. The change of direction might be a process. It's one step after another. If you've hurt people through your sin, there might be some reconciliation, some restoration that needs to happen. That's going to take some time. It doesn't have to be solved in an instant, but you have to change your mind. You've got to change your direction. You've got to start taking steps towards what God wants for you. And the first step, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, is today to submit to him and just pray and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and that you love me enough to forgive me, and I want to live in that, and so I receive that. And when you do that, it says that the angels in heaven celebrate. <laughs> and I want that to be for you today, if that's where you're at. The third thing that I want you to think about is that if, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe there's somebody who's a brother or sister in Christ who who has sinned against you or who is in sin and you haven't had the, um, uh, the courage to, to reach out to and talk to him about it. I want to encourage you in love, in love, in love, <laughs> in grace, in love, in truth, um, to pray and then pray and then pray some more and then talk to them and begin to, to walk through this process of restoration. We call this church discipline, church discipline, but it's really the process of church restoration. It's the way to bring a sinner back to Jesus. And, and, um, and so if that's where you're at, I encourage you to pray about that and, and, and see if God is calling you. And I want to warn you, don't, don't try and be the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't, uh, don't map out their course for how they get back. I mean, you might... You might your role is to say, hey, God's laid this on my heart. I, I feel like you're, you're living in a way that is not in line with what you claim to believe, and I just want you to, to, to wrestle with that with God. Don't turn it into a fight between the two of you. Let them wrestle with God and just step back and let him do his work. Resist the, the, the temptation to be the Holy Spirit and to be their convictor and be like, hey, didn't I tell you about that, right? Nobody wants that, right? They don't want you to do that. Let it be between them and God. If, they, if, they, if they're a follower of Jesus, that, that's where it needs to be. It's, it's, it's ultimately between them. First, but like we talked about, there's a vertical, there's a horizontal. Their sin has an effect on others.